You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Happy Sabbath again, everyone. We're nearing the end of these blessed hours, and what a blessed day this has been, being able to be at camp meeting. I've missed it. I know you have, and the Lord's still got many blessings in store for us as we continue to gather together to study His Word, to seek His face. We're going to continue our study this evening talking about the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14. Now, we'll be getting into the three angels' messages in depth over the next few days, but we're sort of laying the foundation. We're preparing the way for our study of the three angels' messages. As mentioned this morning, the book of Revelation is divided up roughly into three parts. The first five verses talks about a group of people that the Bible refers to as the 144,000. That's our subject that we're going to study this evening. Then you have the three angels' message itself that goes all the way through to about verse... uh, 13, and then starting in verse 14, you have a picture of the second coming of Christ. Now, an interesting feature that you see from time to time in the book of Revelation is that the reward or the goal is portrayed first, and then the prophet backs up and tells you how you get to that goal or the reward. So in Revelation chapter 14, before we even get to the three angels' messages and before we even get to a description of the second coming of Christ, John begins to describe those who are proclaiming the three angels' messages, but he describes them, he sees them in vision, not on the earth proclaiming the message, although they are to proclaim the message on the earth, but John begins by describing them victorious, and they're in heaven, and they're standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And descriptions are given concerning this group of people. And then after the description of the 144,000, then John goes into more detail and explains to us how they ended up getting there. It was through the proclamation of the three angels' messages, and of course the second coming of Jesus. Then they're in heaven. So he kind of does things a little backwards. Revelation is not always written in chronological order. So with that as a bit of a background, let's, let's get to our study for this evening. We're talking about the 144,000, and uh, this is going to be an old-fashioned Bible study. So we're going to be looking at this verse by verse. We're going to be digging in some cross-references. But beginning verse 1, John writes, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, the first reference of lambs that we find in the Bible is actually in Genesis chapter 21, and there's an interesting story. Now, of course, sheep are spoken of earlier than this, but specifically a lamb is referred to in Genesis 21, or lambs. And the story behind that is there was a well that Abraham's servants had dug, and then the servants of Abimelech had confiscated the well, and there was a dispute that occurred. And then Abraham again went to Abimelech and he gave seven lambs to buy back the well that was originally his. Now it's interesting that this is the first reference that we have of lambs spoken of in the Bible. Incidentally, it's seven lambs. Numbers are significant when you get to the book of Revelation. We'll talk more about that later. But here we find the first reference to the lamb is involved in buying back something that originally belonged to somebody else. And so when you think of that in the context of creation, 
the earth belongs to Christ, but the devil confiscated the earth, but Jesus, the Lamb of God, has bought it back. So you find the beginning, the very first reference to lambs in the Bible, are pointing us to, to Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And of course, we find in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist baptizing in the river Jordan, and he says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, of course, John the Baptist said this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He didn't quite fully understand what it was that he had just said, because even John the Baptist did learn somewhat concerning the nature of the kingdom that Christ had come to establish. And yet the Holy Spirit spoke through him, and John the Baptist, pointing to Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the writer, the author of Revelation, John the Apostle, was standing by, and he saw John the Baptist point to Jesus. And John followed Jesus. And here John in Revelation, many years later, he's talking about the Lamb of God, Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. Now what about this Mount Zion? What does that mean? Originally, Zion was the hill upon which the old Jebusite fortress, which David had conquered and renamed the city of David, eventually, of course, it became known as Jerusalem. And when the ark was transferred to Jerusalem, Zion became known as the dwelling place of God. In Revelation, Mount Zion then symbolizes the new Jerusalem. And of course, the new Jerusalem also symbolizes God's church or God's people. In the Old Testament, you find two cities. You have Jerusalem and you have Babylon. These two cities represent two systems. The one is the fountain of truth, Jerusalem. The other one is the fountain of error, Babylon. And these two cities kind of go back and forth throughout the Old Testament. And when you get to the prophetic books of the Bible, especially Revelation, suddenly you discover Jerusalem and Babylon again symbolically representing two groups in this great cosmic conflict near the end of time. Now, Revelation chapter 3 verse 12 talks about this new Jerusalem. And the promise is made to those who overcome, Revelation 3 verse 12, he overcomes, Jesus speaking, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. So the ultimate reward of the redeemed they inherit a city whose builder and maker is God. It's the new Jerusalem. That is the home that Jesus went to prepare for us. So then it says, I looked and behold the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. Now, of course, the number 144,000, if you look at it, it is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And as I mentioned, numbers are significant in Bible prophecy. Of course, the number 12 represents what? Represents the church, represents God's people. You have the 12 tribes of the Old Testament. You have the 12 apostles of the New Testament. There are 12 gates into the New Jerusalem. There are 12 foundations. So the number 12 in the Bible often is associated with God's people, associated with the church. But there are other numbers that we find in Scripture as well. And some of them are rather important and significant when you study Bible prophecy. For example, let me just give you 
a few of the highlighted numbers. The number one in Bible prophecy represents what? It represents unity of purpose. Unity of purpose. Here he, Israel, the Lord thy God is one. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they are united in their mission to save mankind. Jesus said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, united. United. Of course, the number two in the Bible represents the law and the prophets, the two witnesses, symbolized by Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word or truth is to be established. Oh, incidentally, so if Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he took them up into a high mountain, and he was transfigured or glorified, and there appeared with Jesus two individuals, Moses and Elijah. And you'll remember the story there in the Gospels, the three disciples saw this sight, and they were overcome with fear, and Peter, not quite sure what to say, he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here, because now we'll build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the Bible says there was a shadow or a cloud that overshadowed them, and God himself spoke and said, This is my beloved son here, here. Now on that mount, you've got Moses representing the law or the first five books of the Old Testament. You've got Elijah or the prophets. Elijah represents the rest of the Old Testament. Remember, when you think of the two witnesses, I know sometimes you think of the Old and the New Testaments, but... Strictly speaking, even in the time of Jesus, the Old Testament was divided up into the law, the first five books written by Moses, and the prophets, which was everything else. And strictly speaking, the New Testament would be an extension of the prophets. So Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. The law testified that Jesus is the Christ. The prophets testify that Jesus is the Christ. So you have your two witnesses. But the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, who was the third witness that Jesus was the Christ? It was God the Father. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So the number two in the Bible represents the law and the prophets. It's the two witnesses that you read about in Revelation chapter 11. What about the number three in the Bible? Any significance to the number three? Yes. What does the number three represent? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit represents the Godhead. The number four any significance to number four? Well, in Revelation chapter 7, we have a description of four angels that are standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. The number four represents the earth as a whole. It's the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. Incidentally, talking about the number four, how many of the Ten Commandments was written on the first table of stone? There were four. What did those first four commandments have to do with? Our relationship to God. The last six had to do with our relationship to our fellow man. All the world owes worship to God because he has made all things. So the number four represents the earth. What about the number five? Any significance to the number five? Five represents doctrine or teaching. In the first five books of Moses. Five represents doctrine or teaching. The number six, any significance to the number six? Number six is man's number. Man was created on the sixth day of the week. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed in Cana of Galilee was turning 
watering the wine, and by the way, that is just an incredible miracle. If you think about everything connected with that, the Bible tells us that there was this wedding in Cain of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples, about five of his first disciples, they were invited to the wedding. And while the wedding was progressing, it says the wine literally failed. They ran out of wine. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes and says the wine has failed. And it says there were six stone water jugs used for the purifying of the Jews. Jesus told the servants to fill the water jugs with water. And somewhere in the process of that, and they scooped the water out, it became wine, and it was taken to the governor of the feast. The governor of the feast gave his approval, and then the guests could drink the wine. Now, of course, that was pure grape juice. It was unfermented. It was a symbol of Christ's atoning blood, his sacrifice. But it's amazing to me that the first miracle Jesus performed, he performed for a wedding. And in order for the wedding to be successful, there was a need to turn the water into wine. And it took place in six stone water jugs used for the purifying of the Jews. In order for the marriage supper of the Lamb to take place, Jesus took upon himself humanity. And on the cross, Jesus provided the blood that allows the wedding to take place. And before the grape juice was given to the guests, it had to have the approval of the master of the feast. And when Jesus rose from the dead and Mary was there, Jesus said, do not cling to me, do not detain me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. The Spirit of Prophecy tells us that Jesus ascended to heaven. It's a beautiful description in Desire of Ages. And she says how that Jesus, as he entered into heaven, the angels were, were wanting to worship Jesus, but he almost waved off their worship. He was on a mission. She describes how that Jesus went into the presence and he had the presence of the Father and he had just one question. He said, Lord, I will that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. Jesus wanted to know from the Father, was it enough? And the Father said, oh, let all the angels worship him. It was good enough. Then Jesus came back to the earth and he received the worship of his disciples. So number six, significant in the Bible. Of course, the mark of the beast, or the number of the beast, I should say, is 666. You've got three sixes. It's the counterfeit of the Godhead. It's the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And of course, the number seven in the Bible represents completion or perfection. That's, that's God's number. Not a whole lot is significant as the number eight in the Bible. Number nine, not a whole lot. But what about the number 10? Any significance the number 10? The 10 represents the Ten Commandments. Very important. Not a whole lot to the number 11. Number 12, significant, represents the church. And then the, big, the next big number after that is the number 40, which represents a time of testing or purifying. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights without eating anything. Incidentally, there are three individuals spoken of the Bible who fasted or went without food for 40 days. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. When Moses went up into the mount to receive the Ten Commandments, he didn't eat for 40 days. He was supernaturally sustained. Elijah, when he fled from Jezebel, he had an angel providing food, and in the strength of that food, the Bible says, he went for 40 days. Interesting to note that Jesus was on, mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah, all three of them, had 
not even for 40 days at some point. And of course, Moses and Elijah, they were supernaturally sustained, but Jesus was not during his wilderness experience. So the number 40 represents a time of testing, a purifying. Now, what about the 144,000 then? What does that represent? The 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Often in the Bible, when you see 1,000 or thousands of thousands, when speaking of the angel or the angels, it's talking about a large number. So people often ask me, are you saying that only 144,000 are going to be alive and translated to heaven when Jesus comes? I don't think so. Now, if it works out that way, We'll find out. But I think following the symbolism that we have in the Bible, it's more than just 144,000 that will be alive on the earth when Jesus comes the second time. Now, of course, this was something that was discussed even back in Ellen White's day. There was some controversy about the 144,000. And I like the response she gave, and that's my response to you. Don't worry, you'll find out soon enough. <laughs> and we will find out soon enough. But the important thing for us is that by God's grace, each and every one of us have the opportunity to be amongst those if our lives should last and Jesus should quickly come. Some of us right here might be alive when Jesus comes the second time and see him coming in glory. So the 144,000 are those who are able to stand through the events portrayed in Revelation uh, chapter 6 and the opening of the sixth seal. They have the seal of the living God. They are protected in a time of universal destruction when the seven last plagues are poured out. Now, Revelation chapter 6, you have the sixth seal, and this is what it says, beginning in verse 12. I looked when he had opened up the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. We've identified that as the Lisbon earthquake in 1755. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. That was 7080, the dark day, and the red or blood moon. And then verse 13 says, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree when it drops its late figs, when it is shaken with a mighty wind. That has been identified as the great meteor shower of 1833. So at the opening of the sixth seal, we have the earthquake, we have the dark day and the blood moon, and we have the falling of the stars. All of those events have already taken place. It announced the beginning of the pre-advent or the investigative judgment that started in 1844. It announced what we call the time of the end. Today, we are living in the time of the end. There is a difference between the time of the end and the end of time. The time of the end just precedes the end of time. Are you with me? And we have entered into the time of the end at the end of the 2,300-day prophecy in 1844. So currently, we are living in what the Bible refers to as, well, we are in the time of the end. Soon it will be the end of time. Then it goes on to the next verse. This is between verse 13 and 14 of Revelation 6. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the commanders, and the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks, in the mountains. Incidentally, we living between verse 13 and verse 14 of the opening of the sixth seal. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, 
It's interesting that you have a lamb connected with wrath. But Jesus is coming to defend his people. Verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? So the sixth seal ends with a question. The question is, Jesus is coming. Who's going to be able to stand when Jesus comes? Now, the seals are interrupted, and the question is answered in Revelation chapter 7. It describes a group of people, the 144,000, who have the seal of God in their foreheads. This is the same group that we read about in Revelation chapter 14, 1 through 5. Same group of people. And then when you get to Revelation chapter 8, it finishes up the seals, and the seventh seal is silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. The reason heaven is silent is because Jesus and the angels have come. It's the second coming. So a question is asked, Who's going to be able to stand when Jesus comes? The answer is, those who have the seal of God, they are the ones who are able to stand at the second coming of Christ. Now, of course, there is great significance to the order in which John lists these tribes in Revelation chapter 7. Remember that 144,000 come from the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each of the tribes. You can read that in Revelation chapter 7. Each tribe has a specific meaning, and when you link them together, you find a description of the experience that God's people will go through just before the second coming. This is amazing to me. If you look in Revelation chapter 7, you've got a list of the tribes. Now, the tribes are listed in Revelation 7 uniquely. There is no other place in Scripture that lists these 12 tribes in this order. Also, you'll notice that one of the tribes is missing. The tribe of Dan is not included in the list. And you have both Joseph and one of his sons, Manasseh, also included. You have Levi included to make up the full 12 tribes. Also, what's interesting is the way that it's listed in Revelation chapter 7, it begins with Judah. Judah was not the oldest of Jacob's sons. Reuben was the oldest. And so they even changed that. In other words, there is a message in these tribes that God is trying to give us by placing them in this order. So here it is. If you look at these tribes, this list, you've got Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now, if you look at the meaning of these names, you get an experience of God's people. And here it is. If you just look at the highlighted text that says, the meaning of the names, I will praise the Lord. He has looked on me and given good fortune. Happy am I for my wrestling. Will God's people have a time of wrestling before Jesus comes? God is making me forget. God hears me and is joined to me. He has purchased me a dwelling. God shall add to me the son of his right hand. Wow. There's a description of what God's people are going to go through just before Jesus comes. Will there be a time of wrestling? Yes. But will God hear our prayers? Yes. What is the ultimate reward of the redeemed? He will give to us the son of his right hand. Who's that? That, of course, is Jesus. The last part of verse 1 says, having the Father's name written on their foreheads. Now, in the Bible, a name is synonymous with character. So in Revelation chapter three or 7, verse 3, the 144,000 are said to be sealed in their foreheads. There is a close connection between the seal of God and the Father's name. Applied to the 144,000, the seal and the name of God represents two things. Number one, ownership. The 144,000 belong to God. Number two, character. 
The 144,000 reflect the image of God. So here is a group of people that belong to Jesus in the last days of earth's history, and they reflect his character. They keep the commandments of God. They have the faith of Jesus. The last part of verse 1 says they have the Father's name written in their forehead. The decision-making powers, of course, is in the mind, the forehead. To have the Father's name written in the forehead is to have the commandments of God written in your heart by the Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. Ezekiel chapter 36 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Thus you have a group of people who have embraced the new covenant experience. They have surrendered themselves to Jesus. God has written his law on their heart and on their mind. Thus in Revelation chapter 14 verse 12, they keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. They are the recipients of the new covenant experience. We spoke about that this morning in Sabbath school. We spoke about the new covenant and what it means. Okay, looking at verse 2. I need to keep moving here. We're going to run out of time. Verse 2 says, And I heard a voice from heaven. John describes what he hears 38 times in the book of Revelation and what he sees 78 times. In other words, the book of Revelation is an eye-ear account of the things that John has revealed in vision. We actually find that at the very beginning of the book of Revelation where it refers to the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his servants things that must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it. The word they signify can mean symbol or symbolized it by his angel to his servant John. Now notice what John does in verse 2. Who bore witness of the word of God. That's the things that he heard. The testimony of Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit revealing to him and the things that he saw. It's rather interesting as you study the book of Revelation. There are times where John will see something in vision and he begins to describe it and he doesn't quite know what it means. After all, how could he know all the symbols that we know today? He writes things, he hears things, he just faithfully records it. So it's amazing to me when you think about it. Revelation is a message that God gave directly to John and John wrote down whatever he heard and it's given to us today. It is a message from heaven that God has given us for these last days. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters. Jesus has the voice of many waters in Revelation chapter 1 verse 15. It says like the voice of loud thunder. Thunder is often connected with the presence of God in Revelation. And it says the last part, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. John now hears the 144,000 playing their harps and singing of their experience of deliverance. And we get to that a little later in the same passage. Verse 3 says, And they sang, as it were, a new song. So here the 144,000, they're standing on Mount Zion. It's describing them in the New Jerusalem. And they are worshiping, they are singing. And it says they are singing a new song. This new song is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, which the 144,000 will sing, those who have stood with Jesus and have gained the victory. Now you might be wondering, well, what is the song of Moses and what is the song of the Lamb? Revelation chapter 15, verse 2 and 3 gives us a little more detail on this. It says, And I saw something like a sea of glass 
mingled with fire, and those who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over the market and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and they sing the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Now, when we talk about the song of Moses, probably the event that comes to mind is when the children of Israel came up out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea and the Egyptians were coming behind them. They couldn't go to the left. They couldn't go to the right. There were mountains. The sea was in front of them. Their enemy was coming to destroy them and they had to cast themselves fully on God and God opened the Red Sea and delivered them on dry land. Of course, the Egyptians were eventually destroyed as they tried to follow in the sea. And then after this great deliverance, the Bible says that Miriam led out in worship and praise of God's deliverance. There is a song of Moses that you can read about in the book of Deuteronomy, but it really recounts the experience of God's deliverance of Israel. So when it says the 144,000, they sing the song of Moses, it's describing their experience because according to Revelation chapter 13, before Jesus comes, there is a worldwide death decree that is passed against the people of God. Just like the children of Israel standing by the banks of the Red Sea, they have to rely fully on God to deliver them. And in the last moment, Jesus opens the sky and comes to redeem his people. Incidentally, the enemy of God's people are destroyed with the brightness of his coming. So when the 144,000 sing the song of Moses, it's a song of their experience of deliverance. What about the song of the Lamb? We don't have too many times recorded in Scripture where Jesus sang. It is interesting that the Bible does say that just before Jesus and the disciples went to the Mount of Gethsemane or the Garden of Gethsemane that they sang a hymn. But I think the song of the Lamb can best be described in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out and he said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Full surrender to the Father. So likewise, the 144,000, God's people in the last days that have the seal of God, they will have that same attitude of Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done. Whatever it is, Lord, glorify your name. I trust in you. Thus the 144,000 will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Verse 3 goes on to say that they sing this before the throne. Of course, the first few verses of Revelation 14 describe the 144,000 in heaven. So the throng or the throne has earlier been introduced as the throne of the Father in Revelation chapter 4 verse 2. This new song is sung by the 144,000 in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of the Father. Now, I, I want you to just think about this for a moment. John sees a group of people in heaven standing on the sea of glass, and they are singing their praises to God. And they are joined in eventually with the angels, 24 elders, the four living creatures, all participating in this praise and adoration of God. But the singing is not just coming from the redeemed and the angels. But at some point in this experience, there is a hush that falls over the redeemed and the angels. And every eye is turned to the great white throne. And as God the Father looks out on the redeemed, 
His heart is so filled with joy that God breaks forth into singing. Now you might say, Pastor Ross, where did you get that from? Well, here's the verse. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. A verse that we don't always go to, but here it is. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in the midst. It's describing this experience in heaven. God the Father is on the throne. The mighty one will save. God has saved the redeemed. He will rejoice over you, the redeemed, with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. Notice the last part. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you imagine that? Standing, looking at the throne of God, and as God looks at you, as he looks at me, his heart is so filled with joy. that This great thundering voice breaks forth throughout the whole universe as the Father sings over his children. What an experience that'll be. I mean, if, if heaven ends right at the end of that song, it's good enough for me. I mean, what an experience that would be to stand in the presence of God and hear the Father sing for joy because the lost has been found. The prodigal has come home redeemed. Oh, brothers and sisters, barely wait. The verse goes on. It says, before the four living creatures. So the singing happens there in heaven. Now, who are the four living creatures? Well, Revelation chapter 4 talks about them, and I don't have time to get into them in too much detail, but each of the four living creatures are described to have faces, and interesting-looking faces. The first has the face likened to a lion, the second a calf, the third has a face likened to a man, and the fourth has the face of a flying eagle. These four living creatures surrounding God's throne can represent four phases of the ministry of Christ, in man's redemption, the lion symbolizes royalty and kingship. In one sense, it can describe Jesus before the incarnation. A calf or an ox is a beast of burden. It is a sacrificial animal. When Jesus took upon himself humanity, he came to bear our sins and to die as sacrifice. The man represents Jesus as our high priest ministering for us in heaven. Even now, he is our older brother. He is our high priest, one who understands and knows what it's like to be human, for he took upon himself humanity. An eagle is a symbol of judgment and royalty, and when Jesus removes his priestly robes and he puts on his kingly robes and he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords, he's coming forth to deliver his people and to execute judgment Upon the wicked, so these four living creatures, in a sense, can represent four phases of Christ's ministry in man's redemption. It is also interesting to note that in the camp of Israel during the wilderness wanderings, instructions were given as to how each of the tribes would have pitched their tents surrounding the sanctuary. There was a leading tribe, so there were three on each side of the sanctuary. There was a leading tribe in the midst of those different tribes. They were told to take their symbol or their sign, the emblem, and they were to pitch it facing towards the sanctuary where the Shekinah glory or the visible presence of God where the cloud was and the pillar of fire by night. It's interesting to note, you can read about this in Numbers chapter 2. It says on the east side, you've got the standards of the forces of Judah. On the south, you've got Reuben. On the west, you've got Ephraim. And Dan is on the north. Interesting to note that the symbol of the tribe of Judah 
is a lion. The symbol of the tribe of Reuben is an ox or a calf. The symbol of the tribe of Ephraim is a man, and the symbol of the tribe of Dan is an eagle. It's as if looking down from heaven, looking down upon the camp of Israel, it's sort of a miniature of what John sees in Revelation chapter 4 surrounding the throne of God. The lion, the ox, you've got the man and the eagle. Verse 3, going on, what about these elders that are sitting around the throne? Again, we go back to Revelation chapter 4, it describes 24 elders surrounding the throne of God. Who are they? There are two suggestions as to the identity of the 24 elders. The one is that they are the ones who were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection and they were taken to heaven. Have you heard that before? Yes, some of us have. Another suggestion is that they are the created beings from other worlds that have not sinned. Now, there's scriptures for both, and I'll share some of them. With reference to representing those who were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection, we go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, and it says, The graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And that's the last reference that we have of this group of people who were resurrected at the time of Christ's resurrection. Apparently, they did go into Jerusalem for a while, but then we have no further reference of them. You don't hear about them in the book of Acts. They played no role in the early Christian church. So, so what happened to them? Well, Ephesians gives us a clue. As a matter of fact, it makes it quite clear. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, Therefore he saith, when he ascendeth on high, it's talking about the ascension of Jesus, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. So when Jesus ascended up to heaven, those who were resurrected at the time of his resurrection, they ascended up as sort of first fruits of the resurrection. And they're in heaven right now. So we know that Moses is in heaven. We know that Elijah is in heaven. We know that Enoch is in heaven. And this group, we don't know how many, they're in heaven. Now the point I want you to notice here is it says in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8, it says, he, Jesus, led captivity captive. In other words, those who were held captive by the grave, now they are following Jesus as he ascends to heaven. So some have wondered, well, could the 24 elders be that group of people? Well, there's a few other verses. Job chapter 1 verse 6 talks about another group. It says in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came amongst them. This general conference that occurs, Satan comes from the earth. He's the representative of the earth. And of course, you remember the story. God said, where did you come from? Satan said, oh, from walking up and down on the earth. And God says, did you see my servant Job? In other words, there's somebody in your kingdom that really belongs in my kingdom. And you know the way the story ended. But here are these representatives of these unfallen worlds. Could, could they be the 24 elders? Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23, speaks of this group. It says, The moon will be disgraced, the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem before his elders gloriously. So could the 24 elders be these representatives of the unfallen worlds? I'm going to share with you a quote that comes from the book Desire of Ages, and then I'll let you make up your own mind. Here is the description of Christ's ascension. It says, as he ascended, he led the way, speaking of Jesus, and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. So here we have Jesus ascending to heaven, 
those who were resurrected are behind him. Then she jumps to where they're going. There is the throne, talking of heaven. Around it, the rainbow of promise. You find this in Revelation 4. There are the cherubim and the seraphim, otherwise known as the four living creatures in Revelation 4. The commanders of the heavenly hosts. Then she says, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen world, they are all assembled, the heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representatives of the sinless realm of which Satan had thought to establish his dominion, all are there to welcome their Redeemer. So if you ask me, I think the 24 elders are the representatives of the unfallen worlds. Because in Revelation chapter 4, before Jesus gets to heaven, you have a description of the 24 elders waiting for Jesus. It's not until Revelation chapter 5 that you see a lamb as it had been slain. And then Jesus takes the scroll sealed with seven seals. So the 24 elders, I think it's the representatives of the unfallen worlds, but if somebody has a different view, that's okay. We shall know soon enough. That's a good answer you can give, right? Then it goes on and it says, And no one could learn that song except 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. So this song is sung by those who have stood firm for Jesus in the final moments of earth's history and have been taken to heaven without tasting death. This song is the expression of their own experience. Thus only the 144,000 could sing it. It says they were redeemed from the earth. They are translated without seeing death. The 144,000 are redeemed from the earth from amongst the living at the second coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 7, verse 13, 14 gives us some further clues as to the 144,000. It says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where did they come from? So here John in vision has one of the 24 elders asking him a question. And John answers in verse 14 and says, So you know. Now that's an important thing to remember. If ever an angel asks you a question and you don't know the answer, just say, Sir, you know. One of the elders, Sir, you know. And John says, Sir, you know. And then he explains, and he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's referring to those who are redeemed from the earth, those who have the seal of God. All right, verse 4. These are the ones who were not defiled with woman, for they are virgins. Now, of course, in the Bible, a woman often represents a church. You've got a pure woman representing the true church, Revelation 12. You have an immoral woman representing an apostate church, Revelation 17. So here is a group of people who have been faithful or true. They are fully committed to Christ. They are fully dedicated to Him. Thus they are described as being described as virgins. They are faithful for Christ or faithful to Christ. Revelation 12, 17 describes them. The dragon Satan was enraged with the woman, the church, and he went to make war with the remnant of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Revelation 19, 10. It's the spirit of prophecy. The next part of the verse says, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The 144,000 have faithfully followed Jesus on the earth. Now it is their privilege to follow Jesus in heaven. Don't miss that. If we want to follow Jesus in heaven, what do we have to do now? By God's grace, we need to be following Him. Submitting to Him. Surrendering to Him. 
talking of this group in Revelation 7:16, says, They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Now that's an interesting phrase there. Here it's talking about this group of people redeemed from the earth. It says the sun won't strike them, neither any heat. Why specifically talking about the sun and heat? Well, remember you have the fourth plague is an intense heat that comes upon the earth. Here are a group of people who will be alive on the earth. They'll be delivered. And yes, they'll be protected from the plagues, but at least in this case, they will feel some of the heat of the sun during that time. Verse 17, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. No more pain, no more sorrow. Middle of verse 4 says, These were the ones who redeemed from among men. The 144,000 are translated from amongst the living. They are taken to heaven without seeing death. How many people have been taken to heaven without seeing death? You got Enoch before the flood. You got Elijah after the flood. Of course, Moses, he died, but he was resurrected. Read about that in, in Jude, and he was taken to heaven. But he wasn't translated without seeing death. Only two. And then you have this group of people. At the end of time, those who have the seal of God in their foreheads. And then it goes on, the end of verse 4, being first fruits to God and the Lamb. The 144,000 may be considered as first fruits in the sense of being the first part of a larger harvest and also a special gift to Christ. This group follows the Lamb wherever he goes. Verse 5 says, and in their mouth... But found no deceit, or as the King James says, was found no guile. The form of the Greek verb suggests that at a certain time of investigation, the 144,000 are found to be faultless. It doesn't mean that they've never sinned, but at some particular point, they are found to be fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not only imputed righteousness, but imparted righteousness. And of course, we read about this special work of judgment in Daniel chapter 7. Verse 9 says, I watched till thrones were put in place. The Ancient of Days was seated, that's God the Father. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels of burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. It's the angels. The court was seated and the books were open. I want you to just notice the phrase there, a thousand thousands ministered before him. Again, it's talking about a large number. Here we have a description of a judgment scene in heaven that takes place just before Jesus comes. You read later in that same passage where one like unto the Son of Man comes in before the Father. The judgment takes place after the judgment is finished. The kingdoms of this world are given to Christ, and Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, at the conclusion of this judgment, Revelation 22, 11, a declaration is made. Jesus says, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. Who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So at the conclusion of this investigative judgment that takes place in heaven, just before probation closes, Jesus says, He that is holy, 
Let him be holy. He that is filthy, let him be filthy. Probation closes. The seven last plagues are poured out, and Jesus comes to take his people home. At that point, when Jesus says, He that is holy, let him be holy still, in their mouth will be found no deceit. They are fully surrendered to Christ. Their attitude is, Lord, whatever your will is, so let it be done. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura, they are willing to die, then knowingly disobey God. That's the experience of this group of people at the end of time. By God's grace, we want to be amongst them. Amen? Amen. Verse 5 says, In their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. By the grace of God, they have overcome every defect of character. They have been completely transformed by the grace of Christ. Now I look at that and I think, well, Lord, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever be able to be amongst that group of people. But the Bible says it's not by might nor by power, but by thy spirit, saith the Lord. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, none of us will be able to stand in that day if we are not filled with the latter rain. God is going to give us a special portion of His Spirit. And the only reason why we'll be able to stand when that, comes, that time comes is because God is sustaining us. We may be filled by His Spirit. But even now is the time for us to seek it, right? To seek for that deeper, fuller experience with Jesus. We know the time is coming. We have to be seeking for that experience with Jesus. Oh, here it is, Jude 1, 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 3:20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church. How do we as a church bring glory to God? By a revelation of his character. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. In the book Christ Object Lessons we read, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come and claim them as his own. Friends, we are living through some of the most exciting times of this earth's history. We look at the world around us and we get discouraged. We look at the condition of our own hearts and lives, we get discouraged. We look at the challenges facing the church, we get discouraged. But take heart, our greatest days are yet ahead. The Bible describes a group of people who are so filled with the glory of God that the earth is illuminated and they proclaim with a loud voice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And Jesus is able to call his people to come out of religious confusion and make this stand upon Bible truth. Oh, God is going to do a mighty work, a mighty work in the hearts and the lives of his people. He's looking for willing individuals who say, Lord, I am all yours. Whatever your will is, fulfill your work in me. 
Before you even get to the three angels' messages, John begins by describing a group of people standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, so clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, reflecting, reflecting the character of God. Friends, it's our opportunity to be amongst them. We can make that stand today. Say, Lord, please, do a work within me. Let's pray. Dear Father, we've looked at a group of people described in the Bible today, a group that we look at and say, Father, if, if that's what you want to do, Lord, please begin with me. Father, we need your Spirit. We need your Spirit to so work within our hearts and lives, so take the principles of your law and, and write it upon our minds that, that we will love you supremely, that we will indeed be able to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, not my will, thy will be done. Father, we recognize that in us there dwelleth no good thing. But we also know, Father, that with you all things are possible. And all we can do tonight is just say, Lord, here we are. Please, Father, forgive us. Cleanse us. Give us of your Spirit. Empower us. Help us to stand true and faithful to you. For, oh Lord, we long to be in that kingdom. And more than anything else, we want to hear you sing. Keep us faithful, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.